4: Welcome to episode 48 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. This past week, there was little happening in our normal coverage zone of Illinois, Indiana, Seventh Circuit, and the Supreme Court of the United States. But last Wednesday, the Ninth Circuit heard three oral arguments on business interruption claims, and they deal with coverage. And as Pat and I have talked about pretty extensively, we've both been in insurance a long time, and so we thought it's uh, proper to address these three cases we previously covered the issue of COVID-19 and business interruption when the Eighth Circuit heard a case, Oral Surgeons versus Cincinnati. And today we're going to discuss Mud Pie Inc versus Travelers Casualty Insurance, Celane Products Inc versus Continental Casualty Company, and Chattanooga Pro Baseball versus National Casualty Company. We're gonna uh, cover, cover them in reverse order in which they were argued because the anchor leg was really the most complete coverage of many of the issues and it was the longest Uh, session at its 50-something minutes. Uh, These arguments present a full range of the issues in these kinds of cases, including policies with the virus exclusion and without, allegations of the presence of the virus on the premises or not on the premises, and whether the entire issue should be certified to the California Supreme Court at least once or twice during the three hearings. Uh, The panel asked uh, the advocates whether that made sense. Uh, they also illustrate some of the extreme lengths and stretches of logic uh, that counsel for insureds are, are going to in order to obtain coverage. Uh, and in some instances, they if, if they can uh, plead uh, facts, then then perhaps it's not quite the, the stretch. We're going to take a really deep dive in these issues because there are so many procedural issues attended with the substantive ones. So let's get to our first case, Mud Pie. This case deals with a store in San Francisco that was shut down Not because of virus on the premises or even infected employees, but because of the shutdown orders and that the insured asserted that it was the shutdown order and not the virus that caused the damage. The policy had a virus exclusion that the district court did not reach, but which was fully briefed. The thrust of the argument for MudPie was to seek certification to the California Supreme Court, uh, but there are potential issues with that because they filed in a federal court, so it's hard to argue for a state court to decide the issue when they did not even try to get a state court to decide the issue. There's also an issue of delay, especially as these cases are moving pretty quickly through the courts. Certification would take something like a year or more to decide potentially. Section 532 of the California Insurance Code states, if apparel peril is specially accepted in a contract of insurance, and there is a loss which would not have occurred but for such peril, such loss is thereby accepted, even though the immediate cause of the loss was a peril which was not accepted. Hey, why don't you tell us about oral argument in this uh, first of three cases we'll cover today?
0: So thank you, Dan. Uh, real quick procedurally, all of these cases are at the motion to dismiss stage. All were filed in federal court, so they were dismissed on a 12B6 motion. So that's the kind of standard we're looking at. It's, it's de novo in each of these cases, and it's um, uh, these are all questions of law and plausibility of the various allegations. Uh, Dan just read section 532 of the, of the California insurance code. And if you didn't understand it, you're not the only one because I've read it about 10 times and I still don't understand it. Um, (laughs) it, It's, it's, I I, I don't get it. Uh, But there it is. It was one of the arguments advanced by the plaintiff that they, that they were allowed to get coverage. So I want to start with a, with playing a section of the argument where one of the ju- judges jumps in and asks a question. I'm sorry, I don't know these judges very well, so I, I, we're not going to call them by name. I, 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 I don't know them. So, uh, but they. This is one where one of the judges jumped in, asked a question that really kind of frames the issue. So, with that, let's get the let's cue this up and get this played. I mean, I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to wrap
3: my head around um, the argument. I get the argument that direct physical loss could mean loss of use, except for then we have MRI. And this is the language that I mean, you've talked about and we've talked about in other arguments this morning. I mean, MRI says direct physical loss con- contemplates an actual change in the property. So what actually changed in your client's property from the day before the stay-at-home orders were issued and the day after they were released? What changed is that there was a physical limitation on the use of space. The space
2: itself was being used as a store. It's covered property under the under the coverage clause and it could no longer be used for its intended purpose. That's
1: precisely what business interruption. I mean,
3: that's circular, right? I mean, that's the loss of use. I get, I understand that, but um, that's not what MRI says. MRI says an actual change in the property.
0: So the issue in each of these cases begins with, as the judge was getting at, a physical loss or damage to the property. And damage to, there. there's this tension between, is there the difference between these two things? There has to be. Otherwise, one is surplusage, and that would violate a very basic canon of contract interpretation. Right. So- there plainly wasn't damage to, so there has to be physical loss. So what's the physical loss if you're claiming that there was a shutdown order? What? And so their claim is, is that it's a uh, they they loss of use uh, as a result of their ability to use it. Uh, and again, this is a case where the district court did not reach the virus exclusion, even though it was there. So the policyholder argued for what they described as three bedrock principles of California insurance law. The reasonable interpretation of a reasonable layperson uh, is what you apply, that insurance coverage is to be broadly construed, and that the court is not looking for the best interpretation, but only a reasonable one. Now, we're going to come back to the insurer's argument in response to that, but that's where counsel for the insured started. The property was unavailable, as you heard, because uh, uh, the property was unavailable because of orders regarding limiting gatherings and the claim. This case is based upon the first of the restrictive orders entered in California, not the subsequent ones. Right. There was also a discussion of causation uh, in, in California, which applies the efficient proximate cause doctrine. And so the question becomes whether becomes what caused the loss. It seems to me the shutdown order wouldn't have been put in place with no virus. In other words, no virus, no shutdown. So it wasn't that Gavin Newsom just wanted to willy-nilly et- enter shutdown orders well maybe he did but the reason he gave is that he because of the virus. Yeah. Uh, counsel for the insured contended that the virus exclusion did not include pandemic. it only said virus I, I don't even know what that means uh if a virus causes a pandemic that it's the virus it cannot be that the virus is so widespread as to be pandemic that the virus exclusion no longer applies which is what the suggestion was. So then we come to counsel for travelers who argued direct, emphasized the word direct uh, and, and said that the, this is purely economic loss that they're asking for, not physical damage. He challenged the interpretive rules that were sought to be applied by the insurers, I'm sorry, the insurance counsel, uh, that ordinary, he the principles he emphasized were ordinary contract principles apply apply unless there is an ambiguity. There's nothing special about reading a policy of insurance. The court isn't a strain to find an ambiguity. And then you'd have to try to figure out what the words mean and the context and the structure of the policy. And if you can't figure that out, that out then you go to the reasonable expectations of the principles argued by insurance counsel. But even then, he contended that no reasonable insured would expect business interruption coverage for purely uh, economic loss. The, he he talked about uh, his little flow chart uh, as to how to interpret uh, the, the clause. He said, one, there had there was a physical, there was a covered cause of loss, a risk of direct physical loss. Two, if there was that, then direct physical loss, which would include theft and fire, caused the suspension. Three, there were expenses to repair, replace, or rebuild the property. And four, that then you have to look at the virus exclusion. His, you know, Dan started by talking about these as business interruption cases. That's how they've been described, certainly right. in the legal media and in the popular media. But his contention was is that this is a property policy, and business interruption is just one of the recoveries you can make under the policy. It's not a business interruption policy for anything that's out there. It's out there in the event that you have a direct physical loss. Um, the plaintiff in this case, and the and the business interruption applies when you have to repair, replace, or rebuild the property, and they didn't actually have to do any of that. Uh, they also contended There, I mean, there's a ton packed into these cases. Uh, yeah. He also contended that the plaintiff wants to read into the, uh, the policy all risk instead of risk of direct physical loss. They want to read into it, as I said, business interruption, but that's only a collateral to the expenses of damage to property or phys- direct physical loss to property. And then you heard in the, in the colloquy that I played, the physical limitation on the use of space, but that's not in the policy either. So then you reach, if you find that there's direct physical loss, well, then you reach the exclusion. And so how does the exclusion work? You only reach an exclusion if the insuring agreement provides coverage. I, I suppose one can conceive of circumstances where a virus could cause physical damage to property, but then the insured does not even allege the virus was present on their property. They allege it. They don't. They allege that they prevented it from being there by complying with the governor's shutdown order, and then it, they also have this language caused or resulting from that would seem to cover the shutdown order that was imposed because of the virus. Uh, if the virus is not the efficient proximate cause of these shutdown orders, I'm not sure what there would what there would be. Um, Dan, before we go to the procedural issues. Any more on these substantive issues uh, in this case that kind of frame all of what we're gonna talk about in the other cases?
4: I, I think you covered the basis, uh, Pat. The, the one thing I would say is that uh, what I think we'll see from insureds is that there there is expectations that there are policies, many business policies and BOPs and other policies that insureds have businesses. The business interruption is a separate uh, thing it's for when they're not in business, right? And they're losing economic damages because of it. It's a direct, there is a direct business interruption piece to many policies. And I I think we're starting to see you you hear about brokers and others getting questions from their insurance. Well, if this isn't covered, that that's not covered, this isn't covered Then What is, what does this actually cover for me? Right. When I pay premium.
0: So I think we'll see some of that coming up. Um, um, you know, I think, uh, the, the, so far, the broker claims have failed, and they've Absolutely. failed for a number of reasons, not the yeah. least of which is the kind of coverage that they're saying that they wanted weren't available in the marketplace. There right. you know, just wasn't something that could be procured, uh, along with a whole other number of things. Uh, right. regard, you know, We've talked about the statute of limitations for brokers in Illinois, so it's going to be right. a very tough road to hoe I think, I think. it is claims against brokers. But I just think there'll be a, a change in the market pr- pr- potentially on these business
4: policies. And I do think that uh, when we get in the other cases, the, the, the judges did at times uh, struggle with this. Like, there's no uniform answer, and there's cases on both sides and facts and different stuff. And in the case, uh, I think it's Celine, when with the, that we'll cover in the second segment, that they, the, the court actually asked some questions about what about this or that, and it could be dispossession, which is different than the other things that you know is taking place. So I think we'll get to that, but there is a lot packed in these cases. A lot of, lot of
0: stuff going on.
4: There and the certification- is. It, it,
0: it, you mentioned dispossession, and you know, counsel in the in in the mud pie case was clear that it theft and fire. So fire would be destruction, and theft would be dispossession. So the question was, was the property actually dispossessed as a result of the shutdown order? And again, then you run into the you, but you still need physical loss, physical, direct physical loss to the property. It, so it doesn't seem to, uh, doesn't seem to quite work. So let's come on to the procedural issues, which there were many in this particular case. So one of the points that counsel for the insurer made was that no California court, state or federal had found coverage in these circumstances. There were 90 cases. So why certify? What's the, what's the dispute here? Um, if the, the Seventh circuit strike that the ninth circuit is sitting in diversity as it is then it has to predict what it thinks the California Supreme Court would do and how could it be that 90 courts came to the same conclusion and that's somehow going to give you a prediction that the Sup- California Supreme Court's going to do something different. Another interesting question came from one of the justices with regards to a case called Garvey and it, with regards to the prediction role, and they're like, well, hold it now. You know that was a fractured opinion. It was seemed to be three in the majority with a concurrence that disagreed with some of the, the plurality. I'm sorry, it was a three per, three judge plurality, and there was a, a concurrence that criticized some of the reasoning in the plurality. And then there was two. There were two dissents. So oh. how do you apply that? And that's almost like what well, we've I don't we've talked about it, but the Apadaka case from the recent cases before the uh, the United States Supreme Court with regards to. Uh, jury unanimity in both the and Ra- the Ramos case uh, what do you do with uh, with jury uh, u- unanimity and can one ju- can one justice make a otherwise binding precedent not a binding precedent right and then there was a, these these uh, this is the only plaintiff that was specifically asking for certification for the California Supreme Court right and the insurers had, Several arguments. The first was is the Class Action Fairness Act means that they get to stay in the Ninth Circuit. That's a whole other show by itself. We're going to leave that alone and just move right on. The question of contract interpretation is not a proper question for certification. There are other exclusions that could be raised. In other words, the appeal would not be dispositive uh, of the issues, which is a, a necessity for certification. But as the insurance council pointed out, it would be determinative of the appeal, but not of, it only has to be determinative of the appeal, which it would be on whether there was direct physical loss, not the outcome determinative of, of the case. That seems to be a distinction that seems to just waste time. Um, but and then the California Supreme Court, interestingly, has already declined to take a certification from one of its own courts on the issue, so they seem to want to just let it let it ride. Um, so it's there's a number of these procedural kind of issues, both federal procedure and state procedure that have to be considered, and a real concern about delay. As we said, it would take a year or more to get an answer. While it might provide you know uniformity, you know it wouldn't resolve the case, which is what you're looking for in the certification cases that we've discussed on the show. And we did we did talk about uh, when we talked
4: about the oral surgeons, the Ohio uh, Sixth Circuit, I believe did uh, certify a question right to the Ohio Supreme Court and similar circumstances about business interruption and COVID-19. So at least one circuit has uh, referred to a state and the state, I think, has taken it, right? I th- they have. The, yeah. s- the yeah.
0: Ohio Supreme Court has taken it. And so that'll be the f- probably the first state Supreme Court, which these are all questions of state law. Right. You know, federal law has nothing to say about this, which it, one of the things we're going to talk about as we go along is, especially when we get to the third case, is Why'd you file in California federal court uh, when you could have gone to one of 10 state courts? So, an interesting choice procedurally and strategically, I should say, on this. So, with that, we'll take our first break and come back with Solane versus uh, who's the insurer in this case? Solane versus Continental. Solane versus Continental. We're back for segment two of the Podium and Panel podcast and talking about Selene versus Continental Casualty. And Selene is a medical equipment supplier in California. And this case, unlike the prior case, the Mud Pie case that we discussed, does not have a virus exclusion. So I want to play a segment from this portion of the, uh, from this argument. We're going to play several segments during the course of this, but the um, we're going to start off to explain how the virus exclusion and the grant of coverage is working is working from the perspective of the insureds counsel. Uh, the insureds were the appellants in all three of these cases. They were. Uh, this, is, this is insureds counsel here in a colloquy with the court. So bear with me just a second. We'll get this queued up. To cover virus-related losses
3: when they use an exclusion and they didn't use the exclusion here. Well, counsel, I mean, um, setting aside that there isn't the exclusion, the virus exclusion, we all understand that, you're still not gonna get coverage unless the plain language of the coverage grant encompasses your situation. So the question here is whether what happened triggers this property damage grant of coverage language. Um, and so I, I need you to address that point because the, you know if you, if you don't, within that language, whether there's an exclusion
0: or not, matters not at all. So that's, I, I think the, the judge there has quite rightly set forth the issue, is that, okay, no exclusion, but you still have to bring yourself within coverage. And in this case, what the insured tried to do is they pled that Continental disclosed in its financial statements that there was a substantial risk to its financial condition if there was a pandemic, but that they had exclusionary Language, But then they said, but you didn't put it in this policy, so you still have pandemic exposure. There also was a big discussion in this case about the use of extrinsic evidence, like the kind I just referred to, uh, pled in the complaint, and uh, that would include the drafting history. Uh, and the policy was specifically tailored for small businesses in California, and it did not include a virus exclusion. California is a bit of an outlier in allowing the use of extrinsic evidence at all. never mind at the at the motion to dismiss stage. And because that seems to be a substantive issue, not a procedural one, uh, even though they're in federal court, they would get to uh, they would get to use that. So uh, Dan, why don't you tell us more about the oral argument? Sure. And, and as you mentioned, the insurance counsel, he
4: opened by saying he wasn't going to spend much time, you know on on the uh, exclusion because there wasn't one here. Uh, they pled historical disclosures of financial risk and financials about pandemics, and the chairman stated that exclusions were uh, applicable to uh, prevent any coverage. As you said, the, the commentary and questions uh, led to saying that you still have to have prove that you're within coverage. And the insurance council's argument was really the physical change of the property was a change in the air and that, that is a physical change to the property. Uh, they pled that the virus changes the surface of the property by forming fomites on the surfaces of the property. Um, and then uh, you're going to play two segments here. Uh, he was asked if you allege that the virus penetrated the insured premises here, and then uh, he talked about uh, whether it physically attached. So why don't you play those two pieces, maybe back to back, and then we can pick up from there.
1: Awesome. Can you allege that the virus penetrated the the insured premises here? Yes, Is there that allegation? Can you, you, I don't want to interrupt your answer to Judge Moore's question, but at some point, if you could give me that record site. Sure. Um, I can refer you to, uh, two examples, uh, excerpt of record, uh, 449 paragraph four. Okay. Excerpt of record 462 paragraph 52. That one specifically talks about the presence of aerosolized droplets in the air and airspace, altering that air and airspace. Yes, and do, also- you, that, do you allege that as to your premises? Is that, which, is that your opinion? Yes. We're talking about the airspace of our premises. So
4: that was the that first, was
1: piece.
2: first piece. I thought you had conceded that there is no evidence that. COVID actually physically adhered to or attached to your property. Am I wrong there?
1: Uh, you are, Your Honor. We don't. Our, I think what you're talking about is do we allege that the virus is physically present in our premises as opposed to do we allege that the virus is specifically present in the property where it is present? And there's a distinction between the two. Allegations- I asked the first question. I asked whether you allege the property entered your Premises. I mean, sorry, that the virus entered your premises. Oh, then and I thought you me, said you did, and I've gone to these record sites, and they're not. Let me clarify that. I, I misheard your question, Your Honor, I apologize. Our, our answer is the virus does cause physical alteration. We don't allege it in, in our premises. That is true. What we allege in that regard in the complaint and in our briefing is we succeeded in mitigation. That's the whole point here. Had we not taken mitigation steps, both orders and because we needed to mitigate, which we alleged right up front of the complaint in paragraph one. And if you look at the AIU decision, California Supreme Court decision, California Supreme Court recognizes that whether the government tells you to do it or you do it voluntarily, it still can constitute mitigation.
4: Well, yeah. So And and so like like you just played, he talked about mitigation. And so by mitigating, they'd prevented the, the Thing that's a, a very tough argument to say that because you did something, uh, as uh, we talked about in the first segment, you know you can make some arguments about uh, business interruption as a policy holder, but uh, if you didn't have any losses because you did something, no policy covers doing something to avoid losses, right? Because
0: well, they they contend otherwise, but I want to go back okay. to this statement. We, we, we let's, we'll get to that, but let's go back to this statement. We don't allege we, we alleged that it wasn't present on our premises but we do allege it changes physical where it is present it's just not present on us right so I I, I, I mean it's it is such a it, it I, I it is so intellectually dishonest this argument that's being advanced uh and, and he got caught uh that by the way that question asked by you heard the judge ask now I thought I want to make sure I understand you said the phys- the property, wasn't or wasn't actually physically present that's like the only question he asked in all three arguments right this judge this is right. the only time he piped up uh yeah. and it was to i mean just just zing the lawyer i, I think he asked one other question uh, maybe was, but, but it was yeah
4: something minor uh, most of the time it was the other two judges doing the questioning so you know th- there's a duty to present physical loss and by doing that they have a covered cause of loss so if the virus had been there there was damage. But since they prevented it, it, it is covered, it, it, as you mentioned, novel and bead. In Section 531B of the Insurance Code of California, it says an insurer is liable if a loss is caused by efforts to rescue the thing insured from apparel insured against. Um, Which just begs know.
0: the question, Was this What is this virus apparel that was insured against? Now, they claim it was because if it had been, then we – but to rescue the property? How is how rescuing the property when all you need to – First of all, it's not transmissible on, on surfaces. We now know that. And what's the rescue? Okay, you get to wipe it down a little bit. That's some extra expense coverage. That's not business interruption coverage.
4: Right, right. So so the insurer, uh, the appellee, then talked about the issue squarely presents whether the shutdown orders trigger coverage uh, because mere loss of use does not constitute direct physical loss or damage to the property. There was no external force and physical change. Cleaning was not enough and has to be present. Uh, the judge's, uh, uh, you know, this external force thing, I think he conceded, which is is proper because, you know, the virus is an external force. Um, they talked about the MRI case that said you have to have a distinct, demonstrable physical alteration of the property, uh, even if the virus sticks to the surface. But the argument of the insurer is it's not for direct physical loss. Uh, he told the court that he, uh, even though it was not requested, the certification it'd be a waste, as you mentioned earlier, uh, of, of judicial resources. Um, the, the, you know, in this case would probably be a better case for certification because there was no virus here. Um, you know, the, 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 the judge, one of the, one of the judges, and again, like you said, uh, because this is not our normal terrain, there were two female judges on the, on the uh, bench and I wasn't sure all the time who was talking. Um, but she's one of them. Said they they all don't require alteration, uh, that or dispossession, and thought carefully about certification, might be different if allegation penetrated premises had employees that could not get out of the building, might be tough to get to be uniform, and and she did did admonish the insurer's counsel for leaving out dispossession, uh, as you said dispossession could be fire, but it could be other things as well. She she brought up examples like I just mentioned, um, and so. Um, Uh, he he did mention, you know, suggested recovery for mitigation, even an absence of allegation, virus present at premises. Uh, And what his argument was, is if the presence of the virus doesn't give rise to coverage, then mitigation fails as well. And then he talked about uh, also the microbes and absence of exclusion. Uh, Well, there is a microbe
0: exclusion in the policies, not a virus exclusion, but a microbe exclusion as if a virus isn't a microbe.
4: It may or may not be. There, there, um, there are cases that talk about bacteria versus virus versus uh, whether these are organisms or not. So believe it or not, the, the science, I've written a lot about kind of the, the whole issue of, of, of physical loss and, and these things. So, yeah, but, but in any event, on, on rebuttal, the, the, the interesting thing with, with that the, the exchange, um, uh, uh, the appellant said counsel misunderstands or misapplies California law. And the judge said, understood, counsel. This was with and, and regards
0: to the extrinsic evidence issue and yeah, whether they're yeah, allowed yeah. to, you know, and, and he's like, he's got it wrong. And she's like, yeah, we got that next. Uh, right. So apparently you get a, they may get yeah. some discovery here. I, I don't, assuming they find that at all persuasive. She was kind of clear that I don't think this helps you, uh, yeah. all of this business about what CNA allegedly knew and when they allegedly knew it about what the policy said. Um, one, one
4: thing, one thing I think we should we should address somewhat procedurally is that on these motions to dismiss, I think in two of the three cases, I don't think in this case, but in the other two cases, what the appellants were arguing was at the motion to dismiss uh, stage, you know, you have to take the allegations as true, and if there's allegations, then the the court can't decide these issues, right? And and the the, the some of the judges push back, or or the one female judge pushed back and you know, it's a question of law. And to well, she also
0: it. said what you've alleged just isn't plausible. I mean, it, yeah. yeah, you can allege all kinds of things, but if it just isn't plausible, I think there was one case in one of the cases they referred to one of the, uh, not the one of these cases, but one of the other prior cases, they referred to that the shutdown orders were in order to influence the election to harm the right. prospects of President Trump uh, in winning the reelection. And the court's like, that's just not plausible. Uh I, I I'm not uh yeah, you know, I'm not gonna entertain that as a reason for the shutdown order not having anything to do with the virus and it only having to do with trying to harm the prospects of re election of the former president. Um so Yeah. So conspiracy theory was alleged uh and rejected as a plausible as, as an example of plausibility. And this is this is in the context of and we've talked before about yeah. Nick Paul and Twombly. Right. And it was really in passing, but in any event. It's, so I think that it's covers this. But it underlies it underlies everything, is this plausibility idea. And they're just like, it it's just not plausible. And we're gonna get to what's not plausible in an unbelievable argument made in the next one as to the cause of the virus. Wait to- Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you.
4: We're back for segment three of episode 48 of the Podium and Paddle podcast. And with that, we're going to get it right to our third case, Chattanooga, which raises some uh, interesting issues that weren't raised or discussed in the other two arguments we've already talked about. In this case, a group of 10 minor league baseball teams from 10 different states filed suit in California federal court against the insurance company. They alleged regulatory estoppel, which is a form of equitable estoppel, whereby insurers are prevented from asserting an interpretation of an insurance policy provision that is contrary to the insurer's explanation of that policy provision to state insurance regulators when the insurer originally sought approval of the policy form from the state departments of insurance. It seems only Pennsylvania and New Jersey have adopted it. Uh, And and what happens in in, uh, this form and the virus exclusion that came out in 2005 or 2006 is that ISO, which is the main licensing body for uh, property and casualty insurers filed uh, the endorsement. They also filed a, a filing memorandum that explained what the exclusion was intended to do and what it was intended to cover. In this case, the policy did have a virus exclusion, unlike the prior case. But the language in that virus exclusion did not have an anti-concurrent cause language, which is why they alleged all of these various causes of loss. Such such language in a first-party policy that indicates a loss caused by a combination of covered and excluded causes of losses uh, will not be covered. An ACC provision, as it is commonly abbreviated, applies in either sequential cause situations where the first event sets in motion a chain of events that causes a second event that causes the loss. And sometimes the cases, when I taught insurance law, had to do with uh, arcing of of, uh, electrical uh, towers that then cause electrical outages, which then cause flooding, or those types of sequential cause situations,
0: or, or more concur- than one, yeah, or, or more than one cause at the at the fr- at the outset,
4: right? Concurrent cause situations, and if any cause of loss falls within terms of a policy exclusion that is accompanied by this ACC language, the loss will be excluded, regardless of whether another unexcluded cause of loss qualifies as the proximate cause under the jurisdiction's common law rules. The insurance presented a very unique theory of five sources of damages, as Pat mentioned (laughs) in segment two, and they argued that because of the absence of the anti-concurrent cause language and where they argued various causes of loss, the virus exclusion could not work to bar coverage at the motion to dismiss stage. And again, they conceded at some length that they may lose at the trial, uh, on an actual trial or, or summary judgment, but that they were entitled to at least get past the motion to dismiss and the, the argument was government inaction at the beginning of the virus, allowed the virus to spread, uh, to be on the insurance property. The government should have prevented the spread. Uh, the major league baseball was to supply players to these 10 baseball teams. And there was distinct civil authority orders. The district court held the causes were not plausible or that they were not independent of the virus. A vision, efficient proximate cause cannot apply as a matter of law because of all of the various causes, and then the parties are just left with the various state laws that apply. Pat us about oral argument in this case, and some, as you mentioned, some uh, discussion of
0: why they filed in federal court in the first place. So counsel for the insureds claimed that the application of the exclusion is a quintessential question of fact that cannot be decided at the motion to dismiss stage. So in addition to, to arguing both government inaction and government action, caused the spread of the virus, Unbelievable. unbelievable. Uh, the court didn't buy the, it's a, we can decide uh, the application of an exclusion on a motion to dismiss, uh, and then just try to distinguish the application by alleging all of the causes in the chain. Uh, it, it, as, I, as I think, as we said at the outset, this is a bit of mental gymnastics being tried by the insurers to try to find, you see all the different ways that they've gone. In this case, they actually do allege that the virus was on their premises, uh, unlike the other the other two. The plaintiff is asserting that they get past the motion to dismiss stage to get discovery and make the insurers show what the predominant cause was in order to get past the fact or to make use of the fact there isn't this anti-concurrent cause language and to get past the efficient proximate cause standard in California to be able, be able to apply the, ver- the laws of the various states, which in some states would allow them to portion out uh, how much of the cause was covered and how much of the cause was not covered. I'm going to play a section of the argument that kind of really encapsulates the insurer's argument here uh, that may be very helpful in kind of explaining how this works both from both perspectives and why uh, um, they argued the way that they did.
1: we have to go to, this, to the 10 different states and look to how they handle allegations where there's concurrent cause uh, allegations. And we seem to be saying, said it a couple times now, just look at the exclusion without resorting to the to the law of the several states. Can you explain that to me? Yes. Uh,
2: because an efficient proximate cause analysis only applies when there's a covered cause and an uncovered cause.
1: Right, that's awesome. what he's alleged.
2: Uh, but there's, no, oh,
1: ahead. but there's no
2: plausible explanation for why that would be the case when you read the complaint. It's not a reasonable inference from reading Wait. the
1: complaint. What if we disagree with you? I uh, think that there's a, and we want to rule on this as a matter of law, let's decide we get there. We think we can rule on this matter of law. If there's not a question of fact. Then we, then at that point, wouldn't we look to the, the ten different states? Uh, you
2: would, Your Honor, but there would be two things you'd have to do before you get to an efficient and cause and one is you would have to say there's a cause uh, set forth in the complaint that doesn't result from the coronavirus and the virus exclusion therefore doesn't apply um, or,
1: or, or or at least it's a question of fact about that right at least there's a question of fact
2: yes well i think what the question would be is whether the complaint sets forth a plausible explanation other than the coronavirus right. okay so that would be that exclusion then there is also the exclusion for um lapses, cancellation, or uh, suspension of any contract, and you would have to then say that doesn't apply. And then you could do an efficient approximate cause analysis, and um, that analysis, you know, the the test there is what cause predominates and led to set forth in the chain of motion uh, the
1: other causes, and there is well, no... Well, al- almost, almost, right, because let's just say for this hypothetical that I'm not finding that your argument regarding the other exclusion to be persuasive, if you just take that as a, as a hypothetical given for now, right, and, and then we get to the lot of the very, very states, and the, and, the, and the one you just clarified, I think, is, is California, and, and the efficient, efficient approximate cause analysis seems to me to be awfully similar in about eight of those states. It's a
0: so you can kind of get a flavor of how the insurers see this policy is working and how these various parts go together it's see, what the are the thrust of the argument i think as you heard is that we we didn't get the, we only got an articulation of 3 of the 5 causes that they laid out they didn't right. talk about the other 3 uh but of the 3 they listed government inaction councils like well then that means the virus just did it on its own So that just points to more virus, not less. The Major League Baseball didn't supply players to the minor league teams for the first time in 100 years. Uh, Why didn't they do that? Oh, that's because of the virus. And then the distinct civil authority orders, those orders were entered because of the virus. There's no circumstance in which that wasn't the case. So at least three of the five, it doesn't seem that that really gets them anywhere. Now, the, you heard the, the judge posit, OK, let's assume I don't buy all that. Let's suppose I think one of them was actually caused separate from the virus. Then where does that leave us? And then that leaves us with the law of the, the one of the, the law of the 10 states. Uh, um, but the, the other thing that counsel pointed to for the insurers is that 37 cases have a similar virus language with no anti-concurrent cause language. And that the virus exclusion also includes resulting from language. So it's not just caused by, but resulting from. And again, I don't see how these things weren't resulting from the virus. Because take baseball for instance, would baseball not provide the players, but for the or not, but for, but resulting from the virus? No, it was because of the virus that they didn't supply the the players. Um, So, I creative again, uh, creative. But I, I ultimately I don't think uh particularly uh persuasive and li- not likely to be successful. But but we'll see. Dan, um, anything else to cover on uh, Chattanooga? Nope, I think that covers it. Well, I think there is actually one more thing, and you mentioned it, you teed it up, I didn't address it. And that's throughout all these cases, why California and why California federal court? Why not go to the 10 state courts? You know, the, the local baseball team. We got Chattanooga. I when I first saw this capture, I was like, how is this yeah. case about insurance or it, at least about insurance in California? It's in Chattanooga. Uh, and it was plain that they, the lead plaintiff was from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, and then they had they had teams from West Virginia, Texas, California, uh, and some other states, all of which were diverse. Maybe it's because of the only state they could get diversity. Um, that, if you wanted that, maybe. Maybe may, may why be. they chose California. Maybe they thought it would be better, but probably, I, for, probably for efficiencies as
4: well. You know, if you're common teams, you know, in a common structure.
0: Yeah, well, they, they sounded like if they're on all those different places, they're not in the same league. If you've got a team from California and a team from Tennessee and a team from Texas and a team from West Virginia, at the very least, they're not in the same league. It may be a way to conserve resources. Yeah. Uh, you know, major or minor league baseball teams are not noted for being ca- flush with cash. Right. Um, so, uh We've done a really deep dive on these issues together with what we talked about on episode 25 from the Eighth Circuit. And we hope it's helpful in, in articulating uh, these various issues. Dan, we want to talk about our prediction sure to go wrong for the th- these three cases? Sure. Uh, for, we... On all three?
4: I, I, I think so. Again, I, I, I think in Selene, if, if, if they had alleged that there was presence on their, on their premises, if they could have, right? I think you might get a different answer. But I, their I, whole
0: point I, was it is that the ma- the the mitigation prevented it from being there and they should get paid well, for right. the mitigation by shutting like, down.
4: That's what I'm saying. If, if the facts were different in that case, that one, if, if, if you change the facts a little bit because when the judge asked a little bit, I think that's of the three that would have been the one that maybe there would have been a maybe a, a different, maybe a chance of, of, of reversal. But yeah, and I don't, that's in I don't part because about the least. virus
0: exclusion in that case.
4: Right, right, right. And, and the one thing, you know, there, there's a lot of, uh, lot of reference to the pen tracker and a lot of discussion of these arguments about the, the overwhelming number of courts that have come out. The, when you look at where, where uh, plaintiffs have, uh, have successfully pled presence of the virus on their premises and there's no virus exclusion, it's like 80% motions to dismiss have been denied um, in that subset, uh, as opposed to 80% the other way when there's a virus exclusion and or no physical presence. So again, a lot more to come in these cases. And and I think the judge was right to ask the question. I don't think there is, you know, even if you went to uh, the, the California Supreme Court, I'm not sure you're going to get a uniform answer because again, it's it's like, like most insurance, it's fact dependent, right? Policy dependent, language dependent, there's so many factors. So in any event.
0: Oh, so, I agree yeah. with that. One other thing we should mention is that counsel for uh, continental uh, in the Selene case was uh Kamen and Shamnigan from Paul Weiss, who was a frequent advocate uh, before the uh, Supreme Court of the United States. That's usually where we, we hear him. Um, and uh, he argued uh, this case for CNA in the Ninth Circuit here. So uh, a familiar face in, for those that follow the Supreme Court argued for one of the insurers. Uh, Paul Weiss is national counsel for uh, CNA, and he's out of their uh, D.C. office. He's he's a very good advocate. He, he's excellent. He he's he's, he's he's truly excellent. Um,
2: well, there's well, a reason
0: why he does that work. <laughs> right. That's right, and we don't. Uh, and we don't exactly. At least I, at least I don't. Um,
4: so let's turn to our our record. Uh, we, we've improved our record to forty-eight, ten, and three this week with two correct predictions last week. Uh, the first was in Dover vs. Hyatt. This was a case where the court held that the trial court did not abuse its discretion and not transferring the case to Turkey for to of the Doctrine of Foreign Nonconvenience and a case arising out of a sexual assault that occurred in Istanbul, Istanbul at a Hyatt branded property that was managed by entities, uh, more than half dozen corporate entities removed from the named defendants. And uh, we talked about that case and, and uh, there's, there's no discovery, there's no site visits potentially uh, in, in
0: Turkey. And so uh, not, not surprised there. You want to tell us about BILIC, uh, Pat? The, the other one was BILIC from the Seventh Circuit, BILIC versus federal insurance. A lot of insurance today. Uh, yes. And uh, this is a case, this was a sales case. This is a TCPA and the Illinois equivalent. Uh, and this was on a motion to dismiss. The court held that the plaintiff had not alleged facts that uh, of agency to get at the federal and an alleged intermediary. And the court found that they're... Uh, not only were sufficient facts of agency pled, but also that there was personal jurisdiction over the intermediary who claimed that there was no personal jurisdiction over them uh, in Illinois. So um, an interesting an interesting decision there um, as well. So 2-0 oh this week. Uh, and we look forward to next week where we hopefully get some moral arguments from uh, Illinois or, or the Seventh Circuit or someplace or everyone maybe is on vacation. I don't know. Um, yep. But not... Uh, a slow August so far, uh, but we did get, uh, hopefully everybody got something out of this d- discussion about uh, these very important uh, insurance cases. Uh, with that, uh, for Dan, I'm Pat. we we'll look forward to see. oh, we got one more thing? i got the rule of the week. Oh, the rule of the week. I'm sorry. You, you, I forgot. You're right. Yeah, what well, about the rule we'll, of the week?
4: I'll we'll do this quickly. Uh, today's rule is, is rule 306 that governs interlocutory appeals, which was at play in the Doe versus Hyde case. Rule 306 has a number of, in Part A, uh, a number of orders that are appealable by petition. Uh, you can uh, appeal from an order of the circuit court granting a new trial, from an order of the circuit court allowing or denying a motion to dismiss on the grounds of forum non-convenience, which happened there, from an order of the circuit court denying a motion to dismiss on the grounds that the defendant has done nothing, which it would subject defendant to the jurisdiction. And there's a whole list of other uh, items that uh, uh, come into play. And uh, surprisingly, we hadn't covered this uh, before. So we wanted to, I'm sure appellate lawyers know of Rule 306 and what can be appealed. As we talked about on a, an early episode, uh, most orders are only appealable when they're final orders that resolve all matters
0: and claims uh, with respect to all parties. So there are four, four rules that govern interlocutory appeals that jump to mind in Illinois. 304, which is uh, a final order, but only as to some of the claims or some of the claims against some of the parties or not some, but not all of the parties. There's 306, and that's, and that's appeal. There's no discretion. If it's granted, if the, the trial court makes the finding of no reason for just, no just reason for delay or enforcement, it goes up and the appellate court takes it. 306. There's no discretion with the trial court, but the appellate court has to decide whether to take it or not. Then you have 307, which are injunctions, which are on a very fast schedule, and there's no discretion there. And then there's 308, where there's both discretion with the trial court whether to take the certified question or to issue the certified question and with the appellate court as to whether to take the certified question. So you have different varieties of how to get uh, an interlocutory order up to the appellate court in Illinois, and 306 is one of those that uh, only requires discretion with the appellate court.
4: (laughs) I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.